I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deckett. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Tonight's episode is going to be a little bit different. It's a meditation, uh, an extended conversation about themes we had explored in earlier evenings. You know, the future of censorship. We did that a few years ago. And then the idea of whether any book should be banned. And I believe in that conversation, all three of us walked away saying, well, we're against censorship, but yeah, maybe some books shouldn't be out there. Yeah, like, you know, a list of procedures in assassinating somebody and disposing of a body, you know, things like that. Probably not great. Or just uh, recipes for bombs. Maybe yeah. not the best, but also you can argue that it's just like, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's sort of like, um, we have the old rules at the head shops back in the day. This is only for tobacco use, right? It's all in how you use it. Well, and today we're talking about the dangers of books, words, concepts, and ideas that are written that are potentially very dangerous for the future, but they're mostly written about the past Mm. That's correct. We are exploring something related. It's a consequence of what you can call narrative control. Can banning books help people in power control the past? Is it possible that powerful forces in the modern day can literally erase history, rewriting it to suit their own ends? As George Orwell famously said, who controls the past controls the future in 1984. And, you know, maybe 1984 isn't so long ago. Uh, And maybe 1984, as Orwell saw, is on the way as we record. 
here are the facts. Look, there's another great book that's kind of about this or involves this by the legendary author, Neil Stephenson. It's called Anathem. In both of those books, these very shadowy, very potent forces conspire to control everything the public knows about the past. We've always been at war with East Asia. We've also always been at war with Eurasia. And, you know, you'll just have to double think your way around it. In Anathem, without spoiling it too much, a renegade or secretive cabal of monks, they're a little less sinister. They're greater good type dudes, but they're no less powerful. And it's strange because this is, these are both works of fiction for now, but they paint, they point toward a very real thing, this ongoing debate about history and who owns it. Well, I think it's interesting too. We've been doing a lot of these kind of book and media recommendations on the the Instagram and YouTubes and stuff. And I think one thing that I think we all probably think about when we're recommending a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, is whether or not it gives you, it empowers you as a reader to kind of reset your thinking around these types of questions, you know, who controls the narrative. You know, 1984 is a work of fiction, but more prescient now than ever. Um, You could argue that in some ways works of fiction can be just as dangerous, if not more so, as works of nonfiction for those in power because they do have the ability to kind of change minds, uh, even if it's just a little bit over time. Sure. Same reason music gets banned pretty often. It's weird. Okay, so our word for the day or word for the evening is such a very English language word. Historiography. 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 the history of history? (laughs) It's the study of history and the methodology of history as a discipline. So it's like... It's like studying the tech, not, it's like not studying the symbolism of tarot cards, but studying the margins of printing that were used on tarot cards throughout history. It's very technical. Oh, very nice. Hey, you guys, I just learned the collective noun for historians. Ooh. And I'm just going to shout out before I even say what it is. I want to shout out James M. Banner Jr., who wrote a book titled The Ever-Changing Past, Why All History is Revisionist History. But he states, the collective noun for historians is an argumentation. Ooh, well I can done. see that. Yeah. It's about perspective, right? I mean, you know, we all see things and experience things and process things differently. Something that isn't happening right now that we're not looking at as it occurs, there is inherently within the retelling a, a bias. And I guess you could argue that the best historians sort of throw that are, are better at, you know, contending with that bias. But... I love that. I think that actually is is the best way I've heard it described, that it is sort of like, well, here's this school of thought. Here's this school of thought. Here's the way we think it went down. But it's not even about an argument over events. It's about what they mean. Yeah. It also reminds me, I, I try not to quote it too often, but it also reminds me of that William Faulkner quote, the past is never dead. It's not even the past. Something like that. It's true. And we have to love the English language. Other, you know, it, it feels like peak English to have a word about uh, about historians studying history. And <laughs> as meta and weirdly extra as that sounds, it's extremely important now more than ever to steal the line from Fox News. Understanding the objective truth of the past, it's a pretty tricky thing, and it always has been. I mean, 
for thousands of years, right? Basically, since people started peopling, they've disagreed on various narratives, various aspects of origin stories, explanations of the natural world, what happens uh, when uh, object A meets object B, all kinds of stuff. And increasingly, some members of humanity started to lie about some facts, to bend some truths for agendas of their own. And it didn't start out, it didn't start out as a purposeful conspiracy. There was no malevolence. I mean, we talk about this on Ridiculous History. We've talked about it here. Back in the day, people disagreed about what we consider objective facts at this point. And they weren't stupid. They weren't evil. They just didn't have access to the same kind of information we have access to today. You mean like in terms of religious explanations for history and religious explanations for the way the world works? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Like, uh, And that's... That might be a hot take for some folks, but let's let's explore it together. Imagine way, way back thousands of years ago, just hypothetical tribes. There's a tribe in one part of the world, say they're way up in the mountains. They have a completely different understanding of the past than another tribe hundreds of miles away in the plains and the valleys. To your point, they have very different um, religious beliefs, different socioeconomic practices. And imagine now they meet for the first time. This is for them. This is like meeting aliens and they're trying to communicate, right? They have their best intentions. They're telling each other the fundamental inarguable truths of the world as they see it. And each person in that conversation, each side, they think the other one is crazy. Yeah, of course. There are lots of gods. The sun is the main God. People always came from mud mixed with water. And the other guy's like, you dingbat. Yeah, sure. The sun is a God. He's not the main dude by any stretch. And if you don't know that you come from corn, then you must not be human. As a matter of fact, this lake belongs to us now. Wow. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, and then imagine that escalates into those two tribes fighting and essentially obliterating each other, right? So there's not much left of either one. Then imagine, uh, you know, a, a historian or an anthropologist or somebody stumbles upon this scene, let's say a thousand years later, maybe just a hundred years later, and, and sees what's left on that battlefield, what's left of the houses, the writing that's in the houses, and, you know, then has to interpret what happened. Because nobody's there to, to say, oh, this, uh, this group and this group, they disagreed over some stuff and they all died. They're... The historian or the anthropologist has to make stuff up, basically, or interpret the signs, read the tea leaves that are there, and also is applying their own understanding of the world to that situation, right? Absolutely. Well put. Because then, and we're, these are all hypotheticals, but then yeah. imagine in that case, the historian looking into this or the archaeologist looking into this, um, they say, Well, I study arrowheads, and so my paper is going to be about the tremendous role that arrowheads played in both of these civilizations. Now, that's not wrong, but that might be making the the wrong thing the main character, Hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, So it happens, and it happens again with good intentions. History's not set in stone as we record. It's true. Governments have suppressed archaeological digs in the past. Humanity has lost entire cities. 
concepts like phantom time still get a lot of attention, which I absolutely love. Uh, You're living in the 1700s right now. (laughs) I saw that on Instagram reels like yesterday. Wasn't that in the plot of an M. Night Shyamalan movie? Too, or maybe that was a little different. Uh, the, it's the close village. to similar. Yeah, I like well, the village. I know yeah, it's fine, and I also liked his his new one. Um, the what the uh, cabin at the cabin end, of the, end world. of the world. I I yeah. preferred the book much more. Like mm-hmm. the. The, the the I think the film missed some things. No offense, did, 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 It sort of romanticized some things and did a little bit of an easier to digest ending. But uh, by Paul Tremblay, who apparently listens to the show and reposted a video that we uh, we posted about one of his books, which was very sweet. Um, I wanted to mention too, Ben. How do you feel that this figures into like? And I know we'll probably get into this in terms of the history of it, like you know the South, the perspective of you know who won the war and all of that. I mean, we know who won the war, but in certain parts of the country, there are things in history books that might be soft pedaled a little bit but what about that whole debate over like should evolution be included in science books you know in places that are maybe governed a little bit more by um more religious kind of thinking yeah yeah we're gonna get to that in depth i think like the the crazy thing here is for thousands of thousands of years people didn't really know what the heck was going on scientifically So you had to have a cultural framework, usually religious. And now, after millennia, human beings today do have a little bit better idea of what happened in the past. A little bit better. And a big part of that success, yeah, it came from advances in technology. But I would posit to your question that perhaps the most important piece of the puzzle was the removal of religion and ideology from the realm of science. Now, all of a sudden, you don't have to bend objective discoveries to suit the narratives of people or institutions in power. Now you can just tell the truth. You can be like, hey, Earth orbits the sun and people won't execute you, which is a big win. People won't execute you just for like expressing that. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But isn't that interesting, though, Ben? I mean, I think it goes without saying, and we've talked about it a lot, that that kind of perspective, just speaking it into the world, is such a threat to the powers that be. You know, in a time where we were living, you know, in a heliocentric view of the world or or whatever, or like flat earth or whatever it might be. Like when someone breaks those norms and speaks out and has credibility behind them, that is dangerous. Yeah. It's weird. It makes me, guys, I just recently watched the 2016 movie Arrival. Mm -hmm. I think it won an Academy Award. Very, very good. Beautiful. Super good. Uh, and I'm going to throw a spoiler in right here. So if you have not seen the movie Arrival, do yourself a favor and skip forward 15 seconds. That movie is amazing because in the end, the weapon that the extraterrestrials are attempting to give to humanity is a language. A language that allows the mind, whoever can wield that language, to see time differently. Right? And so it's literally... I'm just thinking the reason I'm thinking about this is just language as a weapon when wielded, when, when you use history as your like medium or I don't know, your battle, your battlefield, I guess. Yeah. I like battlefield for sure. No, no, you're right. You're right. It just feels like that 
I don't know. I don't know why I I got one of those visions no, the way Amy Adams gets visions, right? You nailed it. You hit it right on the head. I mean, that is exactly what that movie is is trying to express, I think, is that the biggest, the greatest weapon of all can be language. There's even like a dumb Monty Python sketch about like this weaponized joke that's so funny that at any time it's used, it kills anyone that hears it and they have to like keep it uh, in parts. And one time accidentally someone got both parts and it killed a whole room of generals or whatever. I just think that's great satire. And, you know, and the Villeneuve movie is just taking that to the next level and making it about like time and space and our place in the universe. And without sounding like a, a broken record, the short story it's based on is also really good. And, and the arrival is a really faithful adaptation of it. Yeah. Uh, I think in a previous episode, we mentioned that language is technology. Language is one of the oldest technologies, quite possibly predating fire, right? Which is still pretty popular. Uh, <laughs> so, so our idea is that you don't, ideally, you no longer have to bend the truth. You no longer have to um, dilute the objective veracity of a thing to please a power structure, or do you? The question tonight is, could powerful people or institutions in the present day, could they control narratives such that they alter the public's understanding of history? And if they are doing that, if that is the case, then why? At this point, maybe we pause for a word from our sponsors uh, and get into some deep water that will be edited years later. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. Okay, so what do you think? Can people still rewrite the past? It's happening all the time, before our very eyes. People rewrite last week. People rewrite yesterday. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's rhetoric. It's absolutely happening now more than ever, and it's easier to do because of the internet, and people just kind of believe the take that they see when they see it. Yeah, I, in writing for the New York Times, Max Fisher, back in January of this year, uh, he talked about, right now, there are a bunch of leaders, both autocratic and democratic alike, who are attempting to shift narratives in the public sphere of actual historical events, right? To And they're doing this to benefit themselves, whether it's in an election or whether it's in, you know, keeping their own power in a, in a country. And it's happening more and more and more, and it seems to be more and more effective, uh, you know, as, as a way to sway a populace. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then go to uh, this this real banger of a scholarly paper called Power, Freedom, and the Censorship of History, which aligns with um, the New York Times article you cited, Matt. It's by a guy named Professor Antoon de Bates uh, from the Netherlands. And this guy also says, you know, you can't be too precious about your current ideological identifications because, quote, censorship of history has been practiced in all modes, genres, fields, categories, and periods of history, and in all countries. To begin with, it ranges over all modes of the historiographical operation. All right, a little lost in translation at the end, <laughs> but there, there's the end. Well, it's true that that guy I uh, mentioned earlier who wrote a book, James M. Banner Jr., one of the one of the first points he makes in his book, and he, he wrote a really great piece you can find right now for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, he he talks about the first historical revisionism literally occurred the first time uh, a couple of uh, guys in ancient Greece got around to figure out what history is and like def basically define it and change just the past, you know, things that happened to the stories of the things that happened. It was it was wild, man. Oh, that must have been such a time being an historian back then, because you could just say, I, I heard about it. And, you know, none of you reading this are going to leave 30 miles from where you were born. So this is what a hippo looks like. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And that's this is this is my interpretation of what is actually in the Iliad and the historical events surrounding the myth that is that thing, right? Ben, you, you brought a really incredible book that I'd, I'd, I'd heard talked about for years, but had never actually seen it um, to uh, one of these video shoots we did the other day, the Codex Seraphinius, I believe it's called, right? 
Yeah, it's, the you're really close. It's a weird pronunciation. Seraph- <laughs> anyway, point is, it's this completely legit looking tome of presumably history and science drawings, all of this, but it's but it's all bullshit. Beautiful bullshit. It's all art, man. It's it's. But my point is, like, I think there was a time even where some people were like th- thought it was some kind of artifact or whatever. You know, I don't know if that was the intent, like Blair Witch marketing style or whatever. <laughs> but I think the point is, with any kind of retelling, if you say it with enough authority and you say it enough times and you make it feel legitimate enough, enough people are going to believe it. They're going to repeat it. Sure. And then and then, then it's just going to keep carrying on and then you have these conflicting narratives but now because it's so easy to to proliferate false narratives there's so many more of them floating out around there and you really have to do your due diligence to figure out which one's at least somewhat close to the truth Mm -hmm. and that is quickly becoming a full-time profession uh the this paper from 08 just like the 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 banner junior book that, that you're citing there matt um this paper is pretty fascinating because it's like an insult comic. It's no holds barred. It's not married to any particular political ideology. Uh, this guy looks at different regimes, power structures to determine what people are allowed to know about their past. And of course, we all know dictators autocrats, demagogues, they're going to be big, big fans of censorship and control but we cannot make the mistake in assuming that democracies are necessarily better. Uh, he breaks down the process of how this stuff happens. And these are just two rough categories. There's pre-censorship, which is one of the, um, well, that's the one I think that's the sleeper hit. Maybe we describe what we mean by pre-censorship. Oh, I'll tell you what the, in my head, what I see uh, the movie, good morning, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And there are twins that work in the censorship room where any and all intel that's coming into the radio station or the base where the radio station is, uh, they decide what can or cannot be told, right, as news. And for me, and that's, that's true. That's all real. I mean, it's based on real events. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a telling <laughs> it's historical revisionism about the actual people like Adrian Cronauer. But but still, what I'm what I mean is I see those two guys in my head, like deciding what can go out there. But I guess that's just censorship. What is pre censorship? That's more like having your work pre tweaked before it even is released. It's not banning books. It's augmenting. Things like manuscripts or like uh, 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 press releases or public statements or and, and this really happens. We know this happens, you know, I mean, less so with books, but you might have a situation where you're writing a tell all and you've got some source and it's a real risk to include that source in a certain way. So your public serve might be pre-censoring some of that, but that's not quite the same. But that is a, an example that could happen in, in real in real life. No, I think it's very much the same, you know, because pre-censorship when successful, is invisible to the public. That's right. It's also not just cutting off at the pass a paper written before it publishes, also cutting off at the pass a direction of research. Mm. These are very interesting ideas, but I am under the impression you would like to continue your career at the university. 
So we're going like to stop that. your research, but we are going to take that research, pop it over here to our DARPA. I mean, uh, uh, our secret government invention lab. secrecy act. Yeah. Cough, cough. <clears throat> so this, um, and like you said, it gets tweaked. Things are kept secret. Maybe they're destroyed. Maybe the authors are threatened. That makes total sense for dictatorships, but also to that point you made, before anybody in the U.S. gets on our high horse about this, we have to remember that if you're a former intelligence agent in the United States, you have to jump through a lot of hoops before you make a public statement, before you publish a book. Like Jake Hanrahan said, our pal Jake, I don't know if those people really retire. You know what I mean? So then there's the other one, obviously. This is the more famous of the two, post-censorship. Something comes out. It gets banned because it's either it's dangerous for some reason, whether that's threatening the status quo, uh, whether that is putting a, a group of people in a community at risk, you know, or it might just be changed. Yeah, I, I think about just uh, restricting access to certain websites or um, search key terms or, you know, things that you can do to control the Internet nowadays as a way to, to take part in post-censorship. Or like what happened with that goofy Seth Rogen movie uh, where they, they had the, you know, Kim Jong-il's face being melted off. Remember? There was yeah. some pre-censorship involved in that because they didn't want it to cause an international incident. But then the movie ended up being just so much less remarkable and offensive than anyone might have thought. And, and, and then it got more boost probably from all the talk of censorship than about anything that was actually in the movie. But there was post-censorship too, right? Like the, uh, There was, but uh, I do, maybe I'm misremembering, but I do feel like there was some demand to like, you know, censor what was in there before it came out. And also, by the way, I mean, we, we know this happens all the time in other countries with American films. Like I believe like in the Barbie movie, there's a map that was showing some Ben, you're nodding. I think, you know, you know, this is the geopolitical thing, but it was like a, a, a territory that was in dispute. Vietnam, perhaps. Uh, it was showing this thing, this this body of land as part of a country that, that was in dispute or something like that. And to that point, they were like, you know, enraged and they, they, they insisted they wouldn't release it unless that was taken out. Yeah. The, the map controversies there. There's also a, uh, a standing policy going back to our episode on the Chinese film industry. There's a standing policy not to depict other countries landmarks, or there are a lot of uh, rules around it. So if the statue of Liberty is in a film, then that gets worked around. Don't they have a policy against ghosts? Yes. Too. Is that mm -hmm. a thing that I make? Okay. That's wild. Anything mm -hmm. more specific? Uh, that's in the, in the episode. Um, what we talk about there is sort of their reasoning behind these things, right? Um, we'd have to get back into it, but if you're interested in learning more, please do check out our episode on the Chinese film industry. It's uh, eye-opening, and here's hoping we can still clear customs. <laughs> By the way, if you're interested in that Barbie map thing, look up 9-line. That is a very specific thing. And it was and Vietnam who banned it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently like the movie Crimson Peak didn't get released in China because it had too many spooky ghosts mm -hmm. in it. And like Ghostbusters never got released in China. It's a longstanding party uh, line, the Communist Party line, not to depict. I think it must have to do with ancestor worship kind of stuff that they it's feel like ancestor, it's disrespectful. 
Yeah, ancestor worship and then um, tamping down religion uh, in favor of atheism because what was it? Was it uh, old old Mao, Uncle Mao said that religion is opiate for the masses or his administration did? So if if something is supernatural, that's, that might be a little too close to the line of religion. Got it. But anyway, this, this kind of stuff, post-censorship, pre-censorship, it makes sense for dictators. Uh, and, and I do want to point out, uh, poor Ghostbusters 2. It's an amazing film, but it has two strikes against it. First, it's got ghost, and then, spoilers, the Statue of Liberty plays a huge role in oh, the movie. Oh, no. How, so, what's their policy on ooze? Are they okay with ooze? I think they're I think they're fine with ooze. I think they're uh ooze neutral. So here's the way to put it. And I was up late when I was thinking of this, so it might wax a little poetic. But if you're a dic- dictatorial regime, then propaganda is kind of your loud gun and censorship is your knife. It's silent, but they are both dangerous and they're both used to keep people in line. And while you might not see academics popping Kalashnikovs or AKs in the trenches, make no mistake, they are always going to be some of the first people targeted in a coup, in a military coup especially, for good reason, along with journalists, along with authors. I mean, shout out to the numerous, if if you don't think nerds can throw down, shout out to the numerous Central and Latin American academics who became revolutionaries to fight fascism and to fight, honestly, a lot of U.S. supported forces. You don't hear their stories often because those are, <laughs> to quote Al Gore, inconvenient truths. Uh, <laughs> help, help, I'm being suppressed. <laughs> exactly. We did a lot of study on Fidel Castro a, a while ago, but honestly, I didn't learn a ton about his personal history. And that's just making me think I want to like learn more about that and learn more about FARC and some of these other groups. Mm-hmm. It's like the the history of the individual mm-hmm. leaders, because I, I do not know that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you luck on your journey, Matt. Uh, they're not perfect people. Oh, well, <laughs> who is right? But but again, uh, like there's not a it? single human being on this planet that's perfect. Sorry. That's how we're that's how we're born. It was a perfect <laughs> phone call. It was perfect. <laughs> and they indicted me. <laughs> yeah. You know, Mr. Rogers probably like haunted someone in traffic. So I guess, because we all got to aim for something. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if the RICO law stands up now that it itself is being eroded. I so, love your theory there, but maybe not the time, but that <laughs> I mean, really interesting. Wait, what better time? I mean, just a quick sidebar. There, there, there's a RICO case being brought against a lot of the opposition to this whole cop city movement here in Atlanta. And it's, I don't even understand how they're using it, but there it's, it's a clearly egregious use of Rico law Um, to be absolutely transparent about this. I think we can speak as a unified show here. We uh, support the stop cop city movement. Um, Militarization of police has led to many, many things in the past and none of those things have been good. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about here too. That, that militarization of the police is what allows 1984 totalitarian type situations to flourish. And what's happening is these people are being targeted literally for spreading information, for trying to protest a thing, for, you know, activating people, vote, uh, signing a petition. So Ben's theory is, though, that uh, they're using this 
that it may well be such an egregious misuse that another very prominent use of RICO law might be called into question. Right. Erode the credibility of RICO. And we'll see how that works out. Uh, look forward to your thoughts on that. Just ob objectively, would that work? Um, anyway, there are tons of examples of people controlling history as we record. Uh, to your point, Matt, ask Cuba what they think led to those U.S. embargoes. You know, get their side of the story. Uh, read the North Korean version of the what the U.S. calls the Korean War. Uh, in DPRK, they call it the Fatherland Liberation War. So you can already see there's some dividing narratives. You'll hear a very different version of that uh, than the one you hear in South Korea, ROK, or the U.S., or the rest of the world. And to that question, Noel, about the Civil War, this trend applies to pretty much any war in history, then and tonight. Uh, that's why we did that episode on textbooks. Well, yeah, that's why in Britain, the Revolutionary War is titled <laughs> the Peasant Uprising, <laughs> the Pesky Peasants, mm -hmm. 1700s. So inconvenient, those peasants with their needs for bread mm -hmm. and, and water and sustenance and shelter. Ugh. Representation. Yeah. Uh, 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 uh. And it, it goes so small, too, uh, just to lighten the mood a little bit. You can go to almost any historical article about the Middle East or any, oh, God forbid, any geopolitical article about the Middle East. You can go to the Wikipedia entry and click on the talk tab and just bring some popcorn because people are still fighting over that. And then it, even it goes even unto food because food is a huge part of culture. Ask people who invented what particular dish, who can claim hummus, who was mm. the first person to knock that lemon and those chickpeas together. Oh, man. I, I can't remember who it was, but it was somebody like a food historian or maybe it was literally just like a chef um, on the Splendid Table or Milk Street or one of those NPR shows. And they were talking about that exact thing about how like there it's impossible because these things are part of the oral tradition they're carried around you know and they're they're made they're improved and changed and by the time it gets to the final form like whatever that even is you know no one knows who actually really truly invented the thing not to mention like that you know chicken tikka masala is the national dish of the UK that's just that's freaking imperialism that sounds you know? so good to me well, right that now. makes me think of like who won colonialism i was talking right. with a um, i was talking with an indian american friend of mine about this uh, she was in town recently and uh, <laughs> and you know we had to point it out she spent some time uh, in the uk as well we had to point out uh, what does it say about regional british cuisine that your national dish is from india you know what I mean? It's it's a statement. No offense. One of my favorite restaurants does um, kind of reimagine British cuisine. St. John's out in London. Go Glad someone's reimagining it. Kind of, <laughs> kind of terrible on its own. Shout out to Fergus Henderson. Also, he's an uh -huh. awesome writer. Um, you can either have chicken tikka masala or spotted dick. You choose. Yeah, yeah I think squeak. they shot themselves in the foot a little bit with the names. You know what I mean? I, barley water. What did mm -hmm. I do wrong? Bangers and or mash. Mm -hmm. So another example would be uh, palm frites. Don't call them French fries in Belgium. And, and these things might seem innocuous, but it goes 
much, much further into much more dangerous waters of cultural erasure. Humans have only ever been the sum of the stories they tell themselves. And as a result, those stories are extremely important. They're mission critical to any government from the ancient past to the modern day. A government is just made up of humans so far. And so also, in a large part, it is a story it tells its collective self. Shout out to the American dream, right? That's one of the, that's one of the most popular uh, narratives around here. And this makes us think about the historical trends. We've only name-checked a few examples, but there are many, 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 many other examples, virtually countless, because this is so common. And why should we care? Why should we care in 2023? We'll take a pause for a word from our sponsor, and we'll tell you. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut. And I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have returned. These examples, like we said, they're part of a larger, sadly recurrent trend. Throughout all cultures, all civilizations, all time periods, 
no single country has gotten away clean. Everyone, every force at some point has told you a story that they prefer you to believe. And it used to be much simpler. You know, if you wanted to retroactively edit history, you just had to kill the people who were there when it happened. Right? Yeah, that's pretty simple. Just eradicate a bunch of people. Or it's not, maybe it's not that many people. Maybe it's just one. And when the written word arrived, things got a little more complicated. You had to create a, a class system and restrict access to literacy, right? A priestly class, a noble class, a monastic class, something like that. And the problem is that never works because literacy is a cognitive virus. People will inevitably learn to read, and if they are prevented from learning the language of the ruling class, they'll find a workaround. They'll make something that they can understand. Yeah, and and use it as a weapon to fight back, right? Yeah, well, you know, you could talk about the Vulgate Bible, why that was controversial, right? Or uh, <laughs> there are modern examples that we don't have to get into, but okay. Well, so well liter- maintaining, yeah. how about maintaining um, a language in a, like a smaller community or in an uprising, you know, group? You maintain a specific language that you can communicate in that you know your oppressors or the person you're fighting against cannot speak or read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a huge part of it, a barrier to access. And then let's say, you know, because literacy will inevitably arise in some form, that means books or something like books will begin to exist. So now it's complicated. You can't just kill the people. You have to somehow destroy the knowledge in the books. So burn them, prevent them from being written, ban them, etc. And then at the same time, you propagate the version of the truth that you want out there, like building an urban legend. It's exactly like that, Ben. I think that's spot on. It also makes me think of how another important technology, I guess, of warfare is uh, cracking codes. You know, what was it, the, the operation that actually won us World War One? Uh, I think it was Turing cracking the Enigma code. That's right. right. Yeah, because again, th- there was they were you know using language, using information, siloing information, and then transmitting it over publicly available channels, disguising it. Right, um, and then once you have that cipher, then you have the upper hand. You know, I mean, language in in so many ways is such a weapon in and of itself. I mean, I, I think it's, you know not to belabor the point, but I just I find it fascinating. I think we all do. Agreed. Agreed. So you've got your uh, you've got your state approved version of the truth. You're getting rid of any alternative or revisionist viewpoints and you can reward the people who fall in line by not murdering them mainly. Um, And so back when the average person lived and died within what, around 30 miles of where they were born. They had very little chance of seeing the wider world unless they were a merchant, unless they were sent to war, or they went on a religious pilgrimage, right? Uh, Otherwise, they're going to be pretty local. And this was a very, this was a nearly foolproof proposition. It was easier to change the past. There were fewer people and they had fewer avenues of access to knowledge. So now... It wouldn't be crazy to assume that the dawn of the information age would end this grift, right? Like now everybody with a phone can read anything. Yay. 
No, it's so weird. I, it's so weird. Okay, guys, I'm thinking, I, I don't want to politicize this, but just I want to use this as an example because I think it's pretty prescient. That same article that I met, I mentioned Max Fisher before writing from the New York Times, it's titled, In a Race to Shape the Future, History is Under New Pressure. And he cites the January 6th thing and the, uh, the election of pre- current President Joe Biden as like one of these flashpoints where historical revisionism is like, occurring in real time. Yes. Where there are fact there are as an individual, you have to decide who to believe about what actually occurred. Like you have to make the decision to believe in something and whatever whichever one you believe is the objective truth for you, right? And everybody else is lying or has a motivation to tell 100%. you that lie. But but doesn't it also depend on like your belief in people's intent? I mean, we know that people broke into the Capitol. We know that people did some bad things. The question then becomes, were they justified in doing that or were they acting as terrorists, domestic terrorists? Because it goes back to was the election false, right? And was it? Was it stolen or was there Freedom someone messing with it, right? Versus terrorists. Yeah. So, I mean, but but we as individuals now face this in so many avenues, so many moments in history as we go along. Ben, you're talking about just like when you get to the age of the internet and any, and you can read literally anything, we are now, we're having to make a choice to believe everything. There is no ministry of truth. There is no like somebody who's telling the, you know, humanity or an uber historian who's like ah yes this is what this is the consensus we have all come to about what has happened and what has not happened mm-hmm. <laughs> things that are past have passed or yet to come yeah and and there's no like way to you know we're talking about use of deep fake video for example like what to even believe with your eyes and and how can we get around that there would have to be some sort of watermark or way to authenticate you know to to prove positive that what you're seeing is real footage yeah such things do not exist for text and and facts you know yeah the only way that i will um not assume something is a deep fake is if i see the person in the video choosing fire hydrants from a selection of nine pictures, right? Because robots can't do that. (laughs) But there's no way to attach any kind of authentication methods to truth because it's so much more complex than that. Like you, you can even say, no, that's not a lie and believe it. And if you believe it enough and and say with enough authority, as far as you're concerned, it's not a lie. I think there are even arguments being made, uh, you know, in terms of the charges against former President Trump, that if he really believed the election was stolen from him, then he didn't do anything wrong. It's it's about the nature of belief and and objective truth. And it's becoming harder and harder to to decide what is objectively true. Right. The so-called post-truth world. Here's the thing about the information age. Everybody got so excited. Very few people read the fine print. The reality is that not all information is good, by which we mean not all information is created equal. People have not really changed in terms of motivation. I think that's what we're, we're all three talking about here. You can see concerted efforts to rewrite history all around the world, not just on the macro level. It's not just Russian propaganda. It's not just Iran and the KSA beefing over the history of Islam. And it's not just America selling movies every summer about World War II. The micro level happens too. You've seen it with your loved ones. 
they're telling themselves a narrative of the past. It's not even necessarily um, related to divisive political ideology. Uh, they just maybe they have a different memory of uh, of who broke the cookie jar in 1972, right? And they are ten toes down on that opinion because to them it is a fact. And Uncle Roy is a f- liar, right? It wasn't me. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't be. Right? It was Uncle Roy. <laughs> Uncle Roy is the guy who. Broke the cookie jar. I don't know. This poor family. I hope they work it out. So that that leads us to the future, right? And we are on the cusp of witnessing, I would posit, unprecedented events uh, in the attempt to rewrite history. More and more people get their news from this global font, the internet. It's the oasis in the desert, right? And that means that there are tons of new tools that can be leveraged and are being leveraged to control any given narrative. I mean, think about the show over vaccines. It immediately became a thematic football uh, from the big dogs of world powers, right? Did did Russia, China, and the U.S., uh, when they made statements about other countries' vaccination or COVID efforts, how much of their motivation was purely well-intentioned and how much of their motivation was ulterior? right? Was propagandistic or some sort of hearts and minds attack. Fortunately, we have to ask those questions. And again, we got to think local. Florida just cracked down on how black history is taught in public colleges and universities. And remember, the academics are always the first ones targeted, just like the priests thousands of years back. So yeah, let's take a minute and just talk about this this law. I think it's a great example um, of what we're talking about here. SB two sixty six forbids teachers to teach that systematic racism is quote inherent in the institutions of the United States. Um, they also can't teach that it was designed to quote maintain social, political, and economic inequities. Now this is interesting to me because that is again an example of. <sighs> How do you interpret like some people might argue that we've gotten past that, that it is no longer that that sure it was established when this was a thing and these laws were written with these things in mind. But that as a country, we've moved past that. We're living in a post-racial society. So you could argue from a lawmaking level that to teach that systematic racism is inherent in the institutions of the United States is false because that's making a judgment saying that we have failed in trying to shed these mistakes of the past. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's it's well put. And again, of course, people are going to be sensitive about this because there is a primal identification for some people that can feel like an attack to tell an ugly truth about history. And lest this sound like partisan whinging, got to shout out these two great historians who wrote this article for the conversation, professors Rochelle Ann Davis and Eileen Kane. Uh, they said, look, we're professors. We teach modern history of the Middle East and Eastern Europe. So not even Florida. They're not even teaching Floridian history. They said, we know even democratically elected governments will suppress histories of their own nations that don't fit their ideology. Totally. Yeah. And, and they go on. It is very much uh, worth reading, you know, even if you don't live in Florida, because the point they're making is control of the past has never been the sole domain of dictatorships. It's not about right or left ideologies. It never has been. Controlling the past, basically gaslighting the public to make them more docile, it's an age-old practice because it works. 
just like assassination or excuse me, targeted killing, whatever the thing is now. Dude. Guys, I'm jumping back to Max Fisher one more time. He is saying the same thing, uh, talking about what is it? This is what he's saying. I'm going to give you a quote from him. Um, the goals are sweeping to re-engineer society starting at its most basic understanding of its collective heritage, its collective heritage, right? So it's exactly what you're talking about, Ben. The, the idea of needing to have your history reflect in the identity that you feel, reflect feeling of identity rather than actual identity. Right. To, to include people. The American experiment has done something quite impressive. Uh, and not a lot of other countries have been successful throughout history in this. Maybe the Roman Empire. Mm, maybe the Ottomans, but not really. Uh, the United States, the proposal on paper was you were unified not by your uh, biology. Not mm. by your geography necessarily, not by your religion, your creed, whatever. You are instead unified by the concept of being part of this story, this wow. story called the United States. And that's a tall order. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. It's a big I don't proposal. Know, I don't know if you could pull it off today, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's but, too tough. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it's, it's more yeah. than a modest proposal, you know what I mean? da 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 da, da. <laughs> So, so, I really uh, thought you were going to start talking about eating babies there. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. That's a turn. <laughs> I, I don't know if we're, we're at that point. I hope not. Um, so there's another way to think about this. If you are editing the past to control a populace, and if governments and people are to a large degree just the stories they tell themselves, then when you do this, you're not killing a single person. You're killing an entire version of the past and you're replacing it with a doppelganger, right? With a changeling that is just so. And it's usually going to be a story where in your group, for some reason, looks like the hero. Why would you do this? You do this to justify the current power structure or you do it to rationalize something you're about to do or something you just did. Yeah, <sighs> we blew up. Uh, we Yeah, we blew up you know, this clearly civilian gathering and insert country here, but we did it because of insert reasons. Do you guys mind if I read a quick quote from a song that's just been battering Please. my brain? Please. Uh, it, it's, it, I think it, it, it's a Elvis Costello song. It's the first track off of his 1982 album, Imperial Bedroom. And it's called Beyond Belief. And I just think this is some incredible wordplay. And it just, it kind of sums up some of the stuff to me, at least a little bit. Uh, history repeats the old conceits, the glib replies, the same defeats, keep your finger on important issues with crocodile tears and a pocket full of tissues. I'm just the oily slick on the wind up world of the nervous tick in a very fashionable hovel. Mm. Yeah. I just, it, it kind of makes me weep. It's so good. Like the, the wordplay, man, Elvis Costello. I'm going to tell man. you, I'm going to be honest with you. He's my second favorite Elvis. My first favorite Elvis. No, my first favorite Elvis is a guy uh, in a remote town in East Tennessee. Cool. <laughs> they got weird names. No, but, no, uh, no. but yeah, that's. I think that's quite apropos, Noel. I think that's a really good thing for us to take with us because the results are in. It is true. The democratization of information and technology, it could have led to a better, more universally honest interpretation of the past but it didn't 
there's a paradox. It feels like there are more voices out there, but not maybe not as many as we'd like to think. It's the grocery store paradox. That's what I would call it. We talk about it before, right? You go to a grocery store, you're in the cereal aisle. It looks like there are 30 different kinds of cereal. All the choices. We all have the choices. All the information. We must be smarter, right? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. This yeah. is the reason why uh, Matt says I insist on pretending to like Raisin Bran. I love Raisin Bran, dude. Are you serious? Get out, get out of town. I love it. <laughs> Only guys, you, you, you chase it with some grape nuts, some, <laughs> some, some muesli. <laughs> I really do have a box of just the original RB downstairs. How many is it scoops? The, how yeah. many? Yeah, is it two scoops? Always. Maybe two scoops. <laughs> They're lying to you, Matt. What, what constitutes a scoop? First yeah, of all, I want yeah. a, I want a number. Give they me a show number. you. They show you on the box. There's a here's a scoop. Here's another I, one. I and want full the of metrics Matt, you're being on lied the to, bro. You're being yeah, lied to. Free your mind. But the uh, <laughs> the idea here, even though it seems as small as your grocery store, those cereal brands are ultimately owned by a much smaller handful of holding companies, and that's kind of what happens with the internet. And they keep those brands alive from the grocery store to the internet because they know you dig the illusion of choice. People are sensitive to the stories told about themselves. Uh, To your point, Matt, people want to feel that they are choosing the correct narrative, that they are doing so for objective reasons. History is not just riddled with conspiracy. It's chock full of some profoundly disgusting truths, way more than two scoops. And the question is similar to that old story from Plato and the allegory of the cave. It's the choice in the matrix. Do you want to know what really happened? Or do you prefer the tales told to you by the authorities? Guys, do you think there's a meme opportunity in like Photoshopping like a little plastic container of Play-Doh, but having it have Plato on it? I'm trying to think of that. There has to be an additional twist. That's, that's not great. enough. Yeah, that's a good starting point. That's no, a good starting something. point. Yeah. Let yeah. us know what you think if there's a good way to push that into the over, over the top in the memosphere. Mm-hmm. And while you're thinking about that, let's end tonight's journey with this. We talked a little bit about modern politics. Modern politics are ephemeral, to be quite honest with you. Regardless of religion, regardless of creed, personal ideological leanings, and so on, we have to ask ourselves, doesn't everyone at least deserve a choice, matrix style, between the truth and convenient lies? Shouldn't every human being, by the virtue of their humanity, be able to choose for themselves between an ugly truth and, you know, a smoothed up deception? I don't know. (laughs) It sounds nice, right? It sounds nice that we should be able to have that. I just don't think. I don't think every, and I don't think anybody's ever going to get that. I think. I think we're no one's ever going to agree on what it is. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, you got to get on the same page to figure that out first. Totally, God, um, (laughs) to weigh the things. I mean, again, that's just you started it off so beautifully, Ben. It's just the nature of discourse. It's the nature of history as a storytelling mechanism. It is a storytelling. Uh, enterprise, you know? It's not the same as science. You're not gathering data, per se. You're not gathering vials of things and analyzing them. It's all about context. It's all about the eye of the beholder. It's uh, 100%. I thought that was a Dungeons and Dragons reference for just a second, Noel, and I want to thank you for that. 
I don't know what you're talking about. It I, is. I, you're welcome. That is definitely a reference to a beholder. Come on, dude. The eye of the beholder? Yeah, well, dude. Isn't the that, single like, eye is super cool. Of yeah, the beholder. You, you did a super cool reference. Good. good, good. <laughs> it's got really powerful magic. Be careful of it. Uh, can I give a quote from a Please. UC Berkeley as, uh, associate professor named Andrew Little? Mm. Quote, we want to believe, we want to believe that we are capable and decent and that our friends and our favored relatives share the same traits and that the groups we belong to are on the right side of conflicts. And that's just, that's the quote here. So if there is a narrative being sold to us, whether it's about the future, about what's happening right now, or something that happened in the past that makes us feel all of those things that we are decent, good people, that our friends and our groups are decent, good people, and we didn't do anything bad in the past. We are going to buy that story more often than not. Sure. You want to build consensus. It's very difficult to be the, uh, the 10th person in the conversation who contradicts a lie that everyone has chosen to believe. And that's that's a question, you know, that everyone is going to quarrel with. We would love to hear your thoughts. We would love to um, we'd love to get your take on this, folks. Um, are we being overly alarmist about this idea of rewriting history? Is it less possible now or is it more possible now? What do you think? Let us know. Uh, we try to be easy to find on the Internet. That's right. You can find us at the handle Conspiracy Stuff on YouTube, Facebook, and uh, Twitter, nay X. Uh, I don't know if I'm using nay right there, but I'm going to keep it up. We still call it Twitter. You know what? I actually saw a post from Elon Musk the other day where he referred to it as X, FKA Twitter. <laughs> so uh, I think, I think okay. yeah, I think, I think it would be X, nay Twitter. X like Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And I hate I hate putting X first, but it is what it is. Uh, again, conspiracy stuff on those platforms. Uh, conspiracy stuff show on Instagram and TikTok, where we've got a ton of fun stuff popping. Pretty much a couple times a week, I think. Right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Did you guys see the rumor that Elon Musk prevented nuclear war? Yeah, he. Uh, that explains some of those texts he was sending me. <laughs> No, but for real, the he allegedly turned off the Starlink system. Yes, part of my brain. Oh, but but that but just as a petty like penny pinching maneuver, right? Because he was supposed to give them like free internet, and then they were not paying him or something. Like he, and then he basically just said, "You know what? We're cutting this off." And yes, it did lead to some issues on the battlefield, but he wasn't doing it benevolently. He also had again recently spoken with. Vlad. Well, yeah. So this is the we again, this is like the revisionist history thing that's occurring in real time at all times nowadays. Like the one story is that he got some intel from from Russia, basically, and prevented an attack on some some military naval vessels, Russian naval vessels Russian, in the Black Russia, Sea. Yes. And that preventing that attack prevented tactical nukes from being deployed ah, you know, that's, a so lot, like, that's a lot of if thens that's so a many lot if-thens. of if-thens. it's crazy anyway. but it also goes to show just how somebody doing something completely self-serving and petty could ultimately lead to you know if you're operating at such a high level ultimately lead to something like that and then it just becomes about the narrative twist it's the butterfly effect you know because i used uh because i used cheddar in my quesadilla 
the red panda is no longer endangered. Whatever. It's a, you could if then your way on all sorts of interesting limbs. Um, not saying it's not true, but to your point, it's definitely an interpretation. What about your interpretation, folks? Why don't you give us a phone call? Our number is one eight three three S T D W Y T and K. That's our number. Uh, call it. It's a voicemail system. You've got three minutes. Say whatever you'd like. Give yourself a cool nickname and let us know if we can use your name and message on the air. If you got more to say than can fit in those three minutes, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.